A quick heads up. In this series, we talk about drug use, mental health issues, and there's a bit of swearing. Welcome to the Brett Whiteley studio. Have you been here before at all? I'm Fenella Kernabone, and this is Art, Life and the Other Thing. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was made, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Throughout this series, I sit down with some of Australia's most exciting contemporary artists and curators to talk about the artist, Brett Whiteley, his work and the impact he's had on their careers. In each episode, we delve into one of Brett's artworks, looking closely at the story behind that work, the issues surrounding it, and the impact it has had on the Australian art landscape. In this episode, we're taking a look at Brett's work through a contemporary lens. But to do that, we need to understand the backdrop against which Brett became an artist. Here's Anne Ryan, Curator of Australian Art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Brett Whiteley came of age in the 1960s. He really became prominent in the 60s. He was a young man who was very um, doted upon by his family. He was the kind of young boy that people recognised was going to do something with his life. That expectation was very conventional for boys, but perhaps not so much for their sisters. The opportunities that they got were slanted towards men just structurally within society. Male concerns, male ideas, male opinions on what was of value certainly reign supreme in all aspects of society but also in the art world so the big dealers in Australia and overseas were men the artists that they pushed forward by and large were men it was very difficult and that was the same throughout society so the art world was merely a microcosm of what was going on in the broader society. Like many artists throughout history, much of Brett Whiteley's work was inspired by the female body. You can see this going back in his most early landscape works, which were more abstract in style. Then in the 1960s, his style evolved and became more figurative as he became more and more preoccupied with the female form, largely inspired by his former wife, Wendy Whiteley. He did hundreds of sketches of Wendy. One of his most celebrated works, the Bathroom series, is a result of drawings he did of Wendy in the bathtub. From here, he went on to include female nudes in a number of his paintings, drawings and sculptures, which brings us to the artworks we're focusing on in this episode, Sculptures of Her, a group of female nudes carved out of mangrove wood. To see the piece online, go to agnsw.art forward slash BWS podcast. They were made from wood that Whiteley found along the shores of the Langcove River here in Sydney and they are female nudes. They're very sinuous. They feel very much responding to the natural form of the wood but they're also works that speak to a far longer tradition in Western art but also further back, looking at the the female body in particular in space. They're differently sized. Again, that's a response partly to the materials that he's using. And they have a beautiful sense of of languorous movement in space. A couple of them have got their arms 
extended above the head and then their hands back on the head. There's the sense of the shift of weight in the form, the hips sticking out, the backside sticking out, the head, the breasts, the, the, the spine. They're really quite beautiful lyrical works and some of my favourite sculptures by Whiteley. I like them because of their organic quality. I like the feeling of the movement of the body and the weight of the body through the wood and the way that the, the, the wood has grown naturally. Nature has had just as much a hand in the creation of these sculptures as Brett Wiley did. And I like that about it. I find that very elemental. And it makes me think about ancient sculpture and ancient fertility objects and these objects that are fashioned by hand out of the creation of the earth and, the, and, and nature. I find them quite beautiful. Brett Whiteley's appreciation of the female form is present throughout much of his work. And in this way, he's not alone. The female nude in Western sculpture goes back to the Greeks and the Romans and it's been a conventional subject in painting and drawing and sculpture for thousands of years. Of course, the nude originally started off in its ideal form as the male and transmogrified over the centuries into the female nude, particularly from the 19th century on. So Brett Whiteley is working within a tradition, a Western art tradition, that looks at the female nude in particular as an important valid subject for art. Of course, with our contemporary eye and since the great work of the feminist art historians in the 1970s and, and subsequent to that, we read it differently than it would have been read even in the, in the times when these sculptures were made by Brett Whiteley. And you can't separate contemporary experience and contemporary readings from how we experience these works today. I think that Brett Whiteley, in choosing these subjects, is obviously speaking to his own, his own interest in the, in the female form not only as a formal object in space and part of that tradition but also through male sexuality and he was certainly an artist that was very much of a generation where that was expressed. And he came of age in the 60s when sexual liberation, well, they, you know, people in the 60s thought they invented sex, of course, but it was certainly something that was becoming far more spoken about and public of course, now with the, our lens of, of the year 2020, looking back, we can also see all the problems that were inherent in that and all the power structures that were inherent in that at the time. Given where we are today, how our thinking and our politics have evolved, I wonder how Brett's work sits for Anne today. Every artist is a product of their age, but the great thing about art, good art, that manages to transcend the time in which it was made is that it continues to have a resonance, whether positive or negative, but it evokes some discussion and some feeling. And I think that the intentions of the artist are one thing, but good art is also subject to the subjective readings of those who view it. And so if I look at a, a 19th century studio nude made uh, in France, in, a, in a, an atelier with um, men and women artists first coming together and first being allowed to draw the nude together, which only happened in the last 120 years, 
I'll read that in a different way now than they were reading it at the time. And so feminist theory, queer theory, all sorts of different ways of reading works of art have subsequently emerged and that just adds to the richness of of a body of work like this. Considering how our analysis of art has expanded, where does that leave us with Brett's work today and how we look at it? Should we hold him up to a contemporary standard or accept his works as part of an era? I think for contemporary feminists looking at Brett Whiteley's work, there are as many readings as there are the contemporary feminists, (laughs) let's be honest. But I think looking at the way Whiteley Uh, chose his subjects the way he chose to depict his subjects, the milieu in which he was prominent, the period in which he was prominent. Yes, of course, there were problematic things for our contemporary eye. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we can disregard these works. I think that's anything historical. We always tend to colour it with our own perception and our own position in in the year 2020. Um, And I think a feminist reading of this work, it's not not even overdue. It's been happening for a long time. And I think that um, it's perfectly valid and perfectly interesting. And and I don't think it detracts from the actual visual power of these sculptures as objects in space. Mm. So yes, you can look at Brett Whiteley's work now through a contemporary lens, but considering it through the context of the time it was made is also important. But does this mean we should avoid criticising Brett's nude paintings of women in the same way we would a contemporary artist? I think when you look at historical artists, you have to be very careful not to transpose your contemporary understanding of the world on them too harshly. I think it's good to evolve, it's good to take on other perspectives, whether that be from a feminist perspective, a queer perspective, even understanding different cultures and races and all the different things that we're now, we talk about more honestly, even things like mental illness. Whereas in the, it's really important to understand context for historical art and and you can make moral judgments about it, but you you have to be careful about that because to truly understand what an artist does and what motivates them, one has to have empathy and imagine their position and their upbringing and their milieu and the politics that was around them and the culture. Everything impacts on it. So history is important and it's important to have that empathy and to place yourself in the past and try and understand all the forces that were in play at the time um, because we're no better or worse than those people were. Motives, politics, culture, it's all significant. History in particular, it shapes the way that we look at an artwork like Brett's nudes and it also shapes the way artists today respond in their own work. So let's now consider more contemporary representations of the human form, how things have evolved and what impact this has retrospectively on Brett's work. I'm Deborah Kelly. I'm an artist. Um, I'm from Melbourne, actually, but I've lived in Sydney for 20 years. And you wanted me to introduce my work, which, of course, is a very curly question. I think most artists probably need to have a little lie down before they start answering. How long have you got? 
Deborah Kelly is a mixed media and performance artist. Her work, particularly her more recent work, explores the tension between the idealised body and the diverse body. Contesting the history of nudity in art has been a big part of her practice. I mean, there are, of course, those ancient little statues of which are called Venuses that are found all over Europe and they're like 25 to 35,000 years old. They're possibly um, trading things or religious things or just really recently a feminist archaeologist has proposed that maybe the reason they have no feet and no facial features is that because they are self-portraits by pregnant women, which is such an amazing thing to think about, <laughs> I reckon, because, of course, mirrors hadn't been invented, so they don't know what their faces are like, and they're so pregnant they can't see their feet. So I just love that idea. If we go back to early civilization, the female body was a symbol for well-being and fertility. But for Deborah, when she's contesting nudity in art, what she's really contesting is nudity during the Renaissance period. Why? Because this is when the relationship between male painter and female model really started to change. The first um, reclining nude was painted by George Ernie in like 1510 or something. But those 500 years, 500 and something years of um, those paintings, the oil paintings of the, especially the reclining nudes, they propose women as a sex class, they propose women as decor, and they insist upon a certain kind of um, passivity and receptivity, uh, which mustn't, of course, be overly desiring because then you would tip over into being a slut. So they posit a certain kind of use for the female body, which obviously is our task to shatter. Much of Deborah's work is in response to this, what many refer to as the male gaze, which in a nutshell is a theory where women are represented in the media and the arts in a sexualised, passive way that empowers men and objectifies women. Deborah's work, Lying Women, is an animated collage where cut-out nudes from art history books dance and leap across the screen in a feminist critique of the male gaze. Lying Women, an entirely different kind of work that I made, is a video which is in the collection of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And it is a stop-motion animation that shows hundreds and hundreds of uh, reclining nudes cut from a very great many abandoned art history books. Partly I'm cutting the art history books in revenge because that's the art history I was taught, which seemed to be, it seemed that only European men could make art. When I studied at school um, and even at university, there was nobody of colour and no women at all. And that was very formative, obviously. So I've spent a long time trying to add to that canon and also to destroy it, of course. So that's another one of the amazing things about art. You can be making something creative that also has a destructive intent in a way. I mean, I intend to grapple with the archives and to genuinely fuck with them. Brett Whiteley is part of that archive. His drawings of women are all curves and flesh. Words like erotic, sensual and sacred are used in the titles. 
And yes, there's plenty of reclining going on. So in this way, has Deborah been motivated by Brett Whiteley? Let's look at her series, No Human Being is Illegal in All Our Glory. No Human Being is Illegal in All Our Glory is now 21 portraits of naked people. In that work, nakedness stands for innocence in a way, but it also stands for the human being in the world versus the borders of geopolitics. So those naked human beings are obviously symbolic, but they're also individuals. So, and I guess that's one of the great things about art. You can be thinking about a whole lot of different things simultaneously. So I guess part of the point of that work, the work did attempt to think about a lot of different things at once, uh, borders as well as uh, who is excluded and the regimes of exclusion. But it also sought to address the museum itself in terms of what kinds of bodies do we see represented slim white bodies, almost exclusively. So No Human Being is Illegal also sought to open an aperture into the institution that would allow for a much more magnificent array of humanity to be seen and to be beloved. Galleries are full of female nudes, imaginary ones or otherwise. We just accept them as part of the world of art. But here's a question. Are we as accepting of the male body? Deborah's experience exhibiting her own work suggests that we might not be. So the work um, went on to tour for four years, thankfully, because I didn't have anywhere to put it. Um, And when it was in Penrith, which is in the Bible Belt, I believe, somebody or somebody's plural made a lot of complaints and then they went into the gallery, which is not under very strict invigilation, and they scratched the penises of three of the works with keys, um, full-depth scratches. Nobody was upset by the female nudes because they're used to seeing naked ladies in galleries, I guess. Um, but life-size men, they were totally freaked out about. So in the very end, before the work went into storage, I had to take myself up to Noosa with a um, big magnifying goggles and tiny little brushes and try to repair the penises, which is an extremely strange job. (laughs) One of the weirdest things I've ever had to do as an artist. (laughs) Here's something that may not be as well known to you. Wendy Whiteley, Brett's former wife, was the one who in fact went to art college. Brett went too, but he dropped out early to take a job at an advertising agency. And yet Wendy isn't known for being an artist. She's most famous for being the subject of so many of Brett's paintings and drawings. So how did that happen? Here's Wendy to answer that question, talking about the role that she played in Brett's artistic life. And I, people keep saying to me, why did you give up your career for your husband? I said, never thought about it. I was having a ball. I was doing what I wanted to do. I didn't have that kind of raw ambition that he had. Yeah, I don't know whether it's masculine or feminine, frankly, anymore, but he had it in spades. He wasn't going to settle for mediocrity. We had this really great bathroom that had a lovely old clawfoot bath, but a big heater, which is in all the drawings, great looking thing, which you had to light to get the hot water to come gurgling out of. And, you know, I'd get in the bath. Well, there were great objects already there. 
All of them with a kind of sensuality about them in a way because they were curved, they weren't sharp-edged. He just started the drawings and then returned to figuration much more closely. In a way, he'd ended what he wanted to do with abstraction, you know, and he, so he started to return to figuration. They're not photorealism by any means, and they're still abstracted to a large degree, but it is the return to figuration. And obviously with a fairly clear narrative or theme. So the next exhibition he had was Bathroom. And I was the model. She was the model, he the painter, the creator. Throughout history, the relationship between male artist and female model has often been carved up in this way. In fact, women are often called muses. But how does that dynamic stack up today? It's a question that I put to Mitch Cairns, who we heard from in episode two. In 2017, he was the winner of the Archibald Prize, Australia's most prestigious portraiture prize. He won with a painting of his partner, Agatha Goth Snape, an artist in her own right, and a recalcitrant muse by her own definition. In this painting, she's sitting on a yoga mat in an angular, almost awkward pose. Like many Archibald winners before him, it was a controversial decision, but that's part of the fun, right? Mitch says she refused to sit still and stop what she was doing so that he could paint her. And that's very much about the agency of the subject as well. It's such a co-produced object, the portrait. And I don't think she was deliberately trying to make the, the, the task of making a painting of her uh, more difficult. I just felt that in some ways she sort of entrusted the, the facility perhaps. She entrusted the fact that we'd been together at that point you know, 12 years and, of course, you can make a painting of me. I don't really feel like I need to sit here and and make explicit this contract that we're about to sort of enter into. And that gives the whole exercise much more uh, latitude and, and, and space and air. And I think it made, the, it made the task more challenging, but I think that very much speaks to her as a person. So in a, in a way, she sort of imposes her parameters upon the project, which I was thankful for. It was less, so it was less about me sort of pushing, pushing out. So her kind of absence, in a way, um, made an image. Making a painting of your partner is a strangely very sort of a grounding exercise in amongst all of that. But she never sat for me, so I had to draw, you know, make drawings from memory, and I had to, you know, make drawings of her in the, in the apartment. So she obviously allowed me to make the painting, but she didn't sit for me, which um, kind of speaks to a bunch of things. It, does, it sort of speaks to the sort of chaos of the moment and it also very much about sort of, sort of asserting herself, I think, which is that's something that can't be separated out from the painting. Agatha's refusal to sit for Mitch and Mitch therefore creating the artwork out of the chaos of the moment could in fact be behind his Archibald win. Perhaps it's what made it stand out to the judges, which, depending on how you look at it, means that even in her refusal, Agatha was still a muse of sorts. This dynamic is one that Mitch has thought about a lot, and I wanted to know, looking back at Brett and Wendy's relationship, if he thinks there's any similarities to be drawn. I can understand why Wendy might not, not, not like the term muse, because it's something that's, it's, it's very much something that's been projected onto her, surely. I'm sure she would not have been consciously referring to herself as the muse because it's the, the, the daily life, it dramatises or, or it makes more performative their relationship than what the day-to-dayness of being together would have been. I mean, of course, there's a, a relationship between he and her in the, in the 
in the artwork and in the images, it labours the point perhaps, even though there's a real term with a real meaning and it's and it, and is historically loaded, it's maybe the desire to step back from something which is so clear, the clarity of the term, which is, you know, when something sort of appears or comes across as, as, as quite obvious, there's a natural sort of um, kind of recoiling regardless of what, what it is. It's very nice to sort of to sort of resist, you know, and to resist is, is a fantastic way to proceed. These last few years, we've seen many changes. One of them has been a strong shift in how we talk about power, including how male artists choose to portray women in their work. Brett, like many artists before and after him, was inspired by the female form. He enjoyed painting, sculpting, drawing and celebrating them. But in doing so, he was also containing them, their voices and sometimes their art. Some would argue that Brett was making work in his time. That was the way things were. But how should we criticise his work today against these larger issues? The world is a long way to go before the voices of women, people of colour and minority groups are truly given an equal amount of space. We can acknowledge and continue to enjoy the beauty within Brett's work, but we must also recognise their place in a long history of the female form being relegated to an object for the male gaze. Thanks to Wendy Whiteley, Mitch Cairns, Anne Ryan and Deborah Kelly. This podcast has been brought to you by the Brett Whiteley Studio in collaboration with the Art Gallery of New South Wales. If you want to see more of Brett's work, go to his studio. It's open to the public from Thursday to Sunday and admission is free. My name's Fenella Kernerbone. Thanks for joining me.